You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show, Thursday the 6th of January. Here in TW11 it is very cold, very frosty, very sunny, proper winter's morning here at last. But forecast to warm later in the week, which should mean we're fine for Sandown Park on Saturday. And later in the programme I'll be talking to Rishi Passad about Constitution Hill, the big hype horse for Saturday's Tolworth Hurdle. I'll also be talking to Ryan Potter. A young trainer on the up who trains Jetoile, a horse who might yet be the biggest danger to Constitution Hill. And will also be paying tribute to two significant losses to the horse racing industry. Dahos, the Jewel Breeders' Cup winner, and uh, more significantly, Mrs Josephine Abercrombie, whose contribution to the sport was huge and who died at the age of 95. But as I said yesterday, when we think of uh, racing in the United States of America at the moment, we sadly don't think of the people who've made great contributions contributions to it, the horses who've been great heroes of the past, the, the horses at the moment that are so exciting like Nick's Go and Life is Good and, and Flightline, we think of some extremely troubling news stories and they've just been tumbling out the last couple of days in addition to the collapse of the deal between Usada and Heiser, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, more of which in a moment, we've had more on the, the Bob Baffert case, the death of Medina Spirit, the suspension of California's chief vet, uh, Jeff Blair, because of his potential involvement in the, the necropsy, the post-mortem of Medina Spirit. And we've had more charges added to Baffert's own charge sheet from the New York Racing Authority. The, the director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, Pat Cummings, is here to talk through just what's happening in American racing at the moment. Um, Pat, you asked me where where we should start, and I said I don't really know where to start, but let's start with this most recognisable name, Bob Baffert, and exactly what's going on in this story, because there seems to be a new twist and turn with each passing day. Well, Nick, thanks, and Happy New Year. Um, The Baffert hearing is due about uh, three weeks from now, January 24th, but in this kind of ever ongoing saga that is is now you know pushing uh, pushing eight months, um, there is a a fourth come or there was an announcement by Naira that there are some new charges or or there was some new information from a previous uh, occurrence in California in 2019, which Naira wanted to make sure they added to Baffert's file, so to speak, that included uh, overages of. Uh, the anti-inflammatory phenylbutazone and, uh, you know, other other elements of, of unlocked uh, cabinets and unlabeled uh, medication that was found in his barn at the same time. And and basically, uh, it, it seems like an effort to just add on to a, a laundry list of items that have in some ways not really involved New York racing all that much, mind you. Uh, there haven't been a, a, a superlative of positives for uh, Baffert to trainees uh, in New York, uh, so to speak. But uh, this ongoing case to to try and find a way to exclude him from running horses in the state and uh, this this forthcoming uh, hearing and this, this new information that had been released. And again, it's a, a bit of a winding... Uh, 
oh, a winding description, really, from the New York Racing Association about it. Um, you know, it just seems to add to, to to a long list of other issues that he has had. And and his lawyers, Baffert's lawyers, did not treat the news kindly, saying it's far too late to, to add this into the mix and, and for it to be considered. And there will be a, uh, a hearing officer that is a, has already been selected for it, who's going to have to review all this information, but Naira seemingly wanting to get it out in the public uh, domain first. What do you think Naira's motivation is here? Because that's been, that's been questioned. I think there is some doubt, obviously, on Naira's part of, as to how clean the Baffert operation is. And look, I think you have to legitimately question that of, of certainly some other trainers as well. But um, longstanding, it's, it's, it's very tough to see how what we have seen from Baffert differs from several other big name trainers and not even big name trainers, but high percentage trainers and conditioners that have run both in and out of New York. Um, seemingly that, you know, Baffert is the most recognizable name and face in the sport. Remember the Naira action came after Churchill Downs, uh, put in their ban on, on Baffert and, and it had nothing really to do with any races that had occurred in New York otherwise. So it, I don't know if it's, if it's just trying to draw attention to the fact that, that Naira is taking these issues seriously and they're trying to use the most you know recognizable name in the sport to make it clear to anybody who is perhaps on the fence about horse racing or or, or flat out against it that that Naira takes seriously uh, the issues that are kind of trailing Bob Baffert and have for for quite some time. Of course, back earlier in the year when Naira initiated its original ban on Baffert on May the seventeenth, as you say, that was just after the Kentucky Derby and just after Churchill Downs had taken its what you would call extraordinary action to ban Baffert for, for two years, uh, taking in two Kentucky Derbies. He then got an injunction in his lawsuit against Naira, permitting him to run horses through the Saratoga meet during during the summer. I mean, to what extent do you think that was an aggravating factor in strengthening their resolve? Sure. Uh, has to has to play some role in this. I mean, the, the reality is, is that Baffert sued, Baffert won. Um, he was claiming that he had been denied due process, and now this hearing is at least a, a more formal attempt to offer Baffert due process in the state. But uh, any any regular American follower will, will, will tell you that Bob Baffert runs relatively few horses in New York. Um, and, and so I think this is more a statement than anything if they are able to to execute this uh, this ban um, you know in, in the coming weeks. Uh, and New York is you know, emblematic of, of of the horse racing establishment. They want to be seen to be leading on matters of of integrity. We'll come to HISA, Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, in in a few moments' time. But just continuing this this Baffert theme, he's got Kentucky Derby favorite in his in his barn, and he keeps unleashing good horse after good horse after good horse. I mean, is there any possibility that he can run he can run horses in the Derby under his name in in May? Realistically, as you see it, Pat. As of now, it it certainly seems to not be the case, right? So, so Churchill Downs has put in their ban and there's been no effective challenge to that as of yet. Uh, not to mention Churchill Downs also sets the rules for how the points are accumulated for horses to qualify for the Kentucky Derby. And they have specifically written them as such to disqualify any points earned by Baffert trainees along this path. Now, perhaps the the plan at some point is for Baffert to similarly file some sort of injunction with uh, the Kentucky courts 
to override uh, Churchill's decision in this regard and, and hope that, you know, play the, this out as long as it can and maybe find a way to either get those reinstated or, or, or that cooler heads prevail in some way, shape or form. And that by some stretch, Churchill would go back on their decision. I don't see that happening. Um, but you know, the, the court option is, is probably Baffert's only option at this point and, and to go down the legal route. And I, I think they, they certainly have shown a, a willingness to do so and to fight it in New York. And uh, again, it certainly looks like they're, they're, it doesn't look that way at this moment, but I wouldn't be surprised if they go that route in Kentucky. At the end of the day, Nick, the one thing I think that has to be considered is that the, the, the drug at the center of the Baffert incident regarding Medina Spirit is a legal substance just not at the point of time and and as far away yeah. from the race as they were. So uh, we're not talking about uh, the the same things that Navarro and Service were involved with, and and you know we, we've seen a Navarro sentenced to five years in prison uh, in late December. We've seen other veterinarians and and, and officials that were around that uh, on the on the pharmacology side that are either going uh, already in prison, fined, um, sentenced and with, with likely more to come in the coming weeks, this situation is certainly different. And, and, um, I think unfortunately, you know, the two of them get put side by side a, a little too often. Yeah. And, and f- from the, from the layman's viewpoint, you can see why, even if that's mistaken, even if that's entirely in error, because as we've seen just recently and tragically, Medina spirit has died. And there's been an awful lot in the Navarro case about you know, how many horses perished as a result of, of Navarro's actions. Now, nobody knows why and how a Medina spirit died because we haven't got the necropsy back. We are assuming it's a, you know, a sudden heart failure as these, as these instances often are. But given the significant instances of sudden death in California in the last decade, given the scrutiny on Baffert, people putting two and two together, um, you can understand why uh, it's not just very sad, but it looks terrible too. And well-intentioned participants are the ones who are really stuck in the middle. The people who love racing, the people who uh, raise horses, breed horses, uh, live for this, uh, and those who who spend their hard-earned money wagering on it. The customers typically get stuck in the middle, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times, I don't think you know, people don't know what to believe. And you know, the the, the more opaque these proceedings remain, the more. Uh, the, the lack of information that comes out, the lack of transparency that the regulatory side of the sport has on a day in and day out basis, the worse it is for our overall customers. And, and I know that's something that, that our organization, Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, and um, you know, it, is, it is really what we've been advocating for all along. And it has nothing to do with this case or any of these, these cases in, you know, in particular. Be open, be transparent, customers appreciate it, customers demand it in other sports, and they should demand it of ours too. Now, something very strange happened last night as regards the Medina Spirit case uh, and involving Dr. Jeff Blair, prominent um, California-based veterinarian. Just tell me what happened here. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, I won't call it exactly the most straightforward of situations, but uh, Dr. Jeff Blair, who is the uh, California Horse Racing Board's equine medical director, his license has been temporarily suspended um, by the veterinary board in California, not the horse racing board, the veterinary board. Um, He remains the equine medical director for the California Horse Racing Board, but his veterinary license, he had been a practicing veterinarian for some time previously, that 
license has been suspended after an emergency hearing had been requested by California's board to review it. And apparently uh, the vet board uh, had issued some accusation documents uh, against Dr. Balea and several other uh, Southern California-based track veterinarians in December. And it was uh, found that, that there was a need to at least suspend this license. Now, um, speaking, you know, quoting directly from what the what the board said, it said the board cannot fulfill its mission of protecting equine patients while respondent Blea continues to be primarily responsible for the enforcement of violations that harm the health and safety of racehorses. Um, now, Dr. Blea is involved in many elements of California racing, but that includes the UC Davis Maddie Equine Laboratory, which is a, a an FEI rated laboratory. It's one of the one of the best uh, labs in America. Um, he he he's involved in the necropsy program, so so they would be overseeing the the necropsy of of Medina Spirit for what it's worth, and works with official veterinarians in their oversight of practicing veterinarians. So what the report says is it says this gives respondent Blake control or influence over the drugs administered to racehorses, drug detection and the investigations of medication violations. The board alleges that respondent Blay administered medically unnecessary and non-FDA approved drugs to numerous racehorses. And it goes on and on. There, there's some very good reporting of this from um, Natalie Voss at the Pollock report that folks can go to read. It, it, it's it's um, just another another notch in a, in a crazy series of events where all the news, Nick, seems either uh, negative, bad, it, it, bruising. Uh, it, there's just degrees of negativity, uh, some more than others, and it, it's certainly been very frustrating for, for the overall sport because, like I said, well-intentioned participants don't exactly know how to react at this point. And of course, that leads us neatly on to HISA, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, or authority, depending on which way you want to, to read the acronym. The act is set to uh, come into to force no later than July of this year, and, and that is law that says it has to. Uh, and this is su- supposed to be the great new start for American horse racing with uniformity of medication and a recognized enforcement body, making sure that everything hangs together and is tested properly. Uh, but Pat, uh, HISA has fallen out with USADA, the United States Anti-Doping um, Authority, who was supposed to be the, the enforcement body. So where are we? So in the law, USADA was listed and named as the likely enforcement agency. And the newly established authority was bound to negotiate with USADA in good faith, meaning there could not be any other entities negotiated with to establish a contract to serve as enforcement agent. On December 23rd, Travis Tiger, head of USADA, uh, sent a letter, a press release stating basically that negotiations were done. They were walking away and, you know, we wish you all the best. Um, it was always a possibility, right? There was always a need to establish a contract and the law, the way it was written, seemed a fait accompli that, that USADA was going to be it, but something happened and there's lots of discussion within the industry. Was it about money, the costs of of testing, the what was going to be laid at the foot of the, the various racing commissions? Was it uh, the amount of out-of-competition testing? Were there legal differences between the legal teams uh, on, on all sides? 
And none of us on the outside know the answer to that. What is most surprising, however, is that it was Travis Tigert uh, and USADA who had been promoted as kind of central to a federal authority's creation, the enforcement thereof. And look, he's been speaking at jockey club uh, events more or less for, for nine years, right? He, he spoke at the, the U.S. Jockey Club's roundtable in 2012. USADA-related individuals have spoken uh, in subsequent years. And in much of the public discourse since the authority became law, and uh, a lot of the, the dialogue has come from USADA. They, they, Travis Tigert and his team have more or less seemingly been the public voice of what was to come, of the different elements of testing, of, of control and doping control procedures. And uh, you know, a great amount of information was shared and, and fantastic graphics and documents. And even uh, a month ago, from, from right now where we are, um, in early December, uh, Charles Sheeler, the head of HISA, and, and various USADA officials spoke publicly at the uh, rather large uh, gathering at the University of Arizona's annual uh, symposium on racing. More than 400 people that uh, attended that event. Uh, and they were front and center. Uh, an enti- almost an entire day was spent on uh, USADA uh, and, and, and the authorities related matters. So to get us to this point and to see that two weeks after that, the Tiger and USADA walk away, it feels as though it has left the authority a little uh, without voice, uh, which is disconcerting for everybody that's associated with uh, the business at this point and, and leaves a whole lot of questions and very few answers forthcoming. Yeah, I'm hoping to to get somebody from Heiser on this on this podcast within the within the next week or so. But your communication now is key, isn't it, Pat? I mean, it, it, we don't know whether this can be realistically salvaged or not, or whether it can fulfil the obligations placed on it in law. But what we do need to know is what the plan is, if there's a plan, and we need to know it soon. Otherwise, yeah, people quite rightly will say, "Well, this is this has gone to the dogs." Yeah, there. This is the law, right? The authority is the law, and something needs to be put in place. Um, so un- undoubtedly, uh, the authority. You know, unless, mind you, there are still two outstanding legal challenges. Uh, you know, questioning the constitutionality of the authority's creation at all. So there is, there's still that that's ongoing. Um, but up to this point, yeah. Um, to me, Nick, this is all about communication. This is a big change. Uh, it is. There's a lot of new information that is that is coming to to participants across the country. Uh, mind you, not necessarily everyone who speaks English, right? There, there's a huge Spanish-speaking population that's involved in this. There is a tremendous need to communicate this well, these changes well. It felt as though USADA was kind of leading the charge on that, and that 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 expertise essentially walking out the door uh, puts a lot of things in the lurch, and we are. We, meaning anybody associated with American racing, I think, is just kind of waiting to see what is going to be um, pulled together and amalgamated to, to to launch this authority in, frankly, six months. Um, the, the clock is ticking and there is a need to, uh, to, to, to move forward. And, and I think, um, you know, building a strong communications team 
is really something that needs to happen so that this information can get out, communicated well to everybody up and down uh, the industry of value chain. All this against the backdrop of some spectacular performances on the track from, from horses in the United States, ironically enough. We're looking forward to this matchup in the Pegasus World Cup between Nick's Go and Life is Good. We've got Flightline waiting in the wings to do something spectacular again if he, if he stays sound. Um, can what happens on the track rescue what's happening off it, Pat, or are we too far gone? Well, there was actually some good news uh, on Wednesday when the economic indicators were revealed that showed total wagering uh, handle, uh, paramutual handle in American racing was up from where it was in 2020 and, and frankly, where it was up from, from 2019. So, so those are those are good things, and and they they were not small gains. They were they were low double digit gains, um, which you know it's, it's meaningful. Um, so, so I, I certainly take some positivity to that. The the exact number uh, year over year eleven point eight percent, twenty one versus twenty, and if you went back to where things were in nineteen, the the overall outlook I, I'm, I want to say it's up about ten percent or so. So um, that feels positive. Now, it doesn't mean that all of that money, that new money that has come in is, is necessarily coming from mainstream customers betting on racing. We don't know all the specifics. The, the raw total wagering figures are not fully reflective of the state of the industry. But the one thing that did happen more in 2020 and 2021 than we have seen in years past is far more coverage of racing on mainstream outlets. Uh, this has mostly been headed by the New York Racing Association, their coverage with Fox Sports. Um, it was recently announced that Fox Sports has, has done a deal to, to gain the uh, broadcast rights to the Belmont Stakes. It was later announced that, that those rights extend through to 2030. The, there is more coverage on terrestrial television of American horse racing than ever before. And that has, again, primarily been a function of New York racing and getting it in front of more eyes. They have done that successfully. The question is, can we keep that momentum going? And can we do it at a mainstream level, a grassroots level with younger customers who are, are finding their way to the sport, investing wisely, um, and not, uh, not pursuing bets with, with, uh, you know, low churn rates and, and things that, you know, the, the, these jackpot wagers that tie up money for, for, for many races of time. So, um, I'd say we, we, we can take a, a little positive uh, out of those numbers and, and think that uh, that's at least something to build on. It doesn't mean that there's been any uh, crazy success. Um, it's a win. It's a step in the right direction. It's a positive sign. We have to keep building on that. Well, I did say it wasn't necessarily easy listening, but at least ending on something of a positive note with Pat Cummings, the director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Rishi Passad listening to all of that. And Rishi, for those of us who enjoy racing around the world and for those of us who spend time um, in America, it's, it's pretty alarming. It's a, a real purge at the moment, and you can only hope that it comes out of it in better health. Yeah, encouraging to hear from Pat that there are positive signs for the sport, but it's, it is fraught with danger at the moment, Nick, because there is so much from a welfare and well-being perspective that we need to be conscious of. Um, and with the, obviously, the, the, the deal between the HISA and USADA uh, coming to uh, a stalemate as things stand, 
the addition of the charges to Bob Baffett. It's a pretty unpleasant scenario stateside at the moment. And it's very important that they get the next few steps right. Because as Pat has pointed out, there are healthy things about the sport, but those healthy things will become endangered if other areas of the sport aren't well catered for, well policed and looked after. Uh, Rishi, whilst we're talking about American racing, we ought to pay tribute to to two uh, heroes of of the sport in the United States who've passed away in the last in the last couple of days. One of those uh, is Dahos, the dual winner of the of the Breeders' Cup Mile. You talk about comebacks. This is this is as celebrated a horse racing comeback as you get. The horse trained by Michael Dickinson, who defied an, an enormous absence to to win on on racing's biggest stage. Incredible. He won the Breeders' Cup Mile at Woodbine in 1996. Still remember that's one of probably one of my favourite uh, Breeders' Cups of all time. That one at Woodbine in '96, and De Hoss defeated Spinning World. Who I remember thinking that Spinning World will definitely win the mile, but De Hoss was brilliant that day. Then he, of course, he had significant injury problems that kept him off the course for two years, two years before he came back, and he had a a prep run before the Breeders' Cup in October '98, and then he. Uh, somehow, incredibly, the genius of uh, Michael Dickinson got him back to win the Breeders' Cup mile again. He reclaimed his crown uh, two years after winning at Woodbine at Churchill Downs, and he saw off another horse that would be familiar to racegoers on at this side of the of the pond in Hawksley Hill in a tremendous finish. Uh, a, a wonderful horse to host, incredible uh, constitution to come back after all that time, but of course handled by an absolute genius in Mr. Dickinson. One amazing horse. One amazing life was that of Josephine Abercrombie, which very sadly came to an end yesterday, January the 5th, um, well into her 90s, the age of 95, died at her home, Pin Oak Stud in Versailles, Kentucky. Uh, she was an amazing horsewoman, uh, a boxing promoter of some of the most celebrated names in that sphere, a philanthropist, and a, a huge contributor to thoroughbred horse racing. And if you can ever get Sir Mark Prescott to tell you some of his tales of Mrs. Abercrombie, then uh, I urge you to do so because she was truly a she was truly a one off. And thoughts with everybody who knew her, worked for her, and her many friends and family uh, in uh, the thoroughbred horse racing game and outside. Let's turn our attentions to what's happening here in in Britain, where winter has definitely struck. It's a, the, the coldest day it's been, I think, so far uh, this winter as we approach Sandown's Tolworth Hurdle Day on, on Saturday. People regularly refer to this as the quietest week in the British racing calendar, Rich, even though there's there's three fixtures a day. Uh, in, in the favourite for Saturday's race, we've got one of the most talked about horses of the season, even though he's only run once under under the rules of racing, Constitution Hill. Yeah, incredibly. He's earned a racing post rating of, what is it, 155, I think he's got now for <laughs> that one run at uh, Sandan where he beat Mai Tai, who might well line up against him. I mean, he did beat him impressively. What I do enjoy, Nick, and I don't mind admitting to this, just the fact that Nicky Henderson has hyped him a bit by suggesting that he does very little at home and what he's done on the race course has surprised one or two people, but he holds him in very high regard. Nicky Henderson... When a, a trainer with the illustrious record of someone like Nicky Henderson says that they've got something special on their hands, it's exciting. I enjoy it. I love that sort of excitement for the sport. And Constitution Hill, what he did first time at Sandown was mightily impressive. But it's only one run. It's only one time that he's done that under rules. He's only had one other run in points. Um, I'm hoping that he will win and win impressively and keep the bandwagon rolling on the way to Cheltenham. There are one or two interesting horses against him. 
um, that might make him have to work a bit harder than he did first time. But his odds suggest, as the reputation suggests, that he ought to win and, and win well. And uh, yeah, the, it, as you say, I, I think hype is good for the sport. Yeah, yeah. anticipation is what is what sport is is all about. And you will always get people saying, oh, "He's got to prove it in Grade One Company." But how many horses are there? How many horses have there been in history that have recorded, for example, a racing post rating of one hundred and forty-eight on their first appearance uh, under rules? I, I I I I defy you to 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 provide me with any. I hear you. It's an incredible uh, achievement to, or at least a credible number to be attached to a horse after just one run in a uh, relatively small field uh, without a huge amount of strength and depth. Um, so I like the fact that this horse is now carrying a bit of hype about it. It's all about potential. It's all about what he could do. That's what we go racing for, to see a horse that excites us for the not only what that we see on the day, but also for the next time. It keeps us, as fans, it keeps us coming back to it. So what he did first time certainly excites me, excites a lot of people. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And we all want to see what he can do next time. Hopefully he'll be tested a little bit more. I think he will. Um, and then if he passes that test and passes it well, then who knows what the uh, what the hype will be like as we, we head closer to the festival. Well, it might not all be about Constitution Hill on Saturday in the Tolworth Hurdle. There are other exciting horses in the race. And marquee horse for a, a young up-and-coming trainer is Jetoile, who's... Uh, trainer Ryan Potter joins me now from his base in deepest Herefordshire. Um, Ryan, very exciting day for you on on Saturday. D- did you imagine at the beginning of the season you'd be competing in Grade One Company shortly after Christmas? <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, look, I, I knew the horse was a bit special, but uh, I didn't know if he'd be good enough for this. And well, we'll find out on Saturday if he is or not. But uh, but just as far as me personally, yeah. Uh, to be competing in these kind of races uh, after only having the license 18 months is uh, so unbelievable. I mean, this might be the first time the name Ryan Potter's been in lights, but it's fair to say you're not a, a you're not an overnight sensation. You've been you've been at the game in one form or another for a little while now. Just to, for those who aren't familiar, just give us a little bit of background. Uh, yeah, well, I um, I started out. I went on the Oliver's when I was 13 uh, on work experience, uh, flat trainer in Ireland, and. Um, Oh, I just got hooked on it from then, really. Um, so I spent basically my time with him until I was about 17, really. I spent more time there than I did at school. And then um, I came over to England doing my farrier apprenticeship. So I got out of uh, the horses. Well, not out of the horses. I such about racing for four years when I did my apprenticeship. And then uh, as soon as I qualified, I started training a few pointers and uh, had a bit of luck with a horse, uh, Fox Cub. He uh, won around Cheltenham for me, won five races for us. And uh, Don Bercy, he won, he won five or six point points. And so uh, it just sort of snowballed from there, really. And uh, I got the license out last July. And um, yeah, it's, it's just went better. Uh, every month, so we've got new owners. And yeah, it just seems to be going the right direction anyway. So tell me a little bit about about Jetoile. He's he's come quite a long way in quite a, a short space of time. Like he, he had plenty of runs uh, pointing, um, obviously with no joy. But and he's that bit older. He's the oldest horse in the race, so he's a seven year old. Um, so he should be because he's just that little bit stronger than maybe some of the others. Um, hi, look, he's he's he is he is a work in progress. Like uh, the first day at Cheltenham, he was too keen, and then. 
uh, he was a lot better at Chepstone and he's better again at Leicester. So every every run he's getting better and better. And you know, looking at his profile, as you say, he had a, you know several runs, not just one or two, but several runs in 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 point to points, and and he seems to have really turn himself inside out. Is that just a question of maturity? What's brought about the improvement? I'd say, I'd say maturity and look, three mile, they don't do two and a half mile point points in Ireland. There was all three mile point points, and he's a, he's an out and out two mile. He's going to be an out and out two mile chaser. Um, so that was maybe look, he showed plenty. I think. He won a couple of schooling races, and um, but Jimmy Kelly, um, an agent in Ireland, uh, he would uh, get us a lot of our horses, and he uh, he rang me and said, this horse needs buying, so I approached the owner and just said to him, look, I found you a nice horse, and uh, yeah, she, luckily, it's her first horse in the yard, and no, we, couldn't have, we couldn't have started off on a better note anyway. Yeah, you've struck gold already. Whatever happens from here on in, you say he's. <laughs> well, well, you don't know what's going to happen yet. I mean, you look at a horse like Constitution Hill. Do you just do you just shrug your shoulders and and say, well, you know, we've just got to do what we got to do? Uh, no, look, we're we're not going there for a free lunch and a day out. Uh, like he's there to be. You never be afraid of one horse, and he's um he's there to be took at the at the end of the day. He got beaten as point to point. No, um, no, you can't be afraid of one horse. And uh, look, he's second favourite to the Supreme for a reason. And Nicky Henderson's obviously one of the best trainers in the country. So uh, look, he's he deserves to be favourite. But yeah, he's there to be. He's there to be. Got that, isn't he? So uh, if you take him out of it on the betting, it's a very open race. And and you're you're based at some pretty historic stables as well, where where John Edwards used to train. Uh, yeah, John Edwards used to train here. Um, obviously, Yahoo, Pearly Man, there's plenty of good horses trained out of here. So um, hopefully we can bring a bit of history back. Ryan Potter there. Rishi, we ought to give a jockey Liam Keneary a mention. Something of an unsung hero in the in the weighing room in, in, in Britain. But he's he's now on 999 winners, is it? And, a, and an amazing comeback last night. Yeah, winner at uh, Kempton on Fact or Fable for Stan Moore last night, his 999th winner uh, back in the summer. I mean, obviously, Liam Canary, like a lot of jockeys, suffered his fair share of injuries, but I think he had a pretty, uh, by all accounts, horrific leg break uh, back in the summer. And obviously, as these things do, they take a bit of time. Uh, He's been incredibly resilient, Liam Canary. He's uh, the type of the type of character that we ought to applaud. We ought to take the time to applaud because uh, very little pomp and ceremony, but a lot of hard work, a lot of enthusiasm for the sport in the face of some challenging circumstances, and to achieve just one shy of a thousand winners in in Britain is uh, is pretty incredible. So a huge pat on the back for Liam Canary, and hopefully he will stay clear of injury for a very long time from here. Yeah, to chisel out that many winners over a long period of time without really the backing of a massive stable at any point or a a major job is a a pretty significant achievement. It is indeed that you know the majority of riders who end up with these huge numbers have a, a backing of a, a very big stable, uh, a significant backing of a big stable. Yes, he's been attached to the likes of the, the balding team, etc. But he's been he's not he's only been a, a, a I said a bit part player. I'm sure he's more than that. But in terms of getting the rides on the race course, um, he hasn't achieved the the quantity from a huge stable that some other riders that have achieved the numbers that he's uh, arriving at in his career in the past. So, uh, uh, like you say, huge pat on the back for him and, and what he's done so far. And Rishi, finally, have you got a tip for me for today? I'm going, Nick, for the last race at Newcastle on the All Weather. I was at Chelsea with a horse called Kefalus, one for uh, Charlie Hills at uh, 
slight surprising uh, success when he won two starts back, but he was incredibly impressive last time at Southern. He's only got a £6 penalty for that, and I think he'll take all the beating. Yes, he is favourite, but I think odds against is all right. All right, Rishi, thanks so much. That was Thursday, January the 6th. We'll be back to do it all again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.